0: Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,
0: Hello, everyone. I am Michael Kalori, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast about the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good.
2: Hello. And today we'll also be joined by Wired writer, Ariane Marshall, who is going to tell us all about what's happening in the Wild West of transportation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a Wired party.
3: Yes, and a little bit of housekeeping. It's going to be a Wired-sponsored party, but we hope it's fun regardless. Kind of like when you go to a party and enjoy all the free food and booze, and then afterwards you're thinking, huh, that was sponsored? Yeah. So the Gadget (laughs) Lab will now be running ads, both for other great podcasts from our sibling websites like Vanity Fair and for products beyond the Wired universe. That's
0: right. So you'll hear ad breaks in the middle of the show, and at the beginning of the show from now on, into perpetuity. Uh, Something else you might notice if you are a subscriber is that there will be a preview podcast popping up this week uh, in your Gadget Lab feed. It's a preview episode of a new Game of Thrones podcast. It's called Citadel Dropouts, and it's hosted by our friends Laura Hudson and Spencer Ackerman, both Wired alums who are now at The Daily Beast. Uh, The podcast is being distributed by Wired, and it's awesome. And if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you are definitely going to want to listen Uh, The new season of Game of Thrones starts on Sunday, April 14th on HBO, and a new episode of Citadel Dropouts will arrive shortly after each week's Game of Thrones episode airs. Laura writes our recaps for Game of Thrones on Wired. She'll be doing that. So if you're a big Game of Thrones fan, you should be a big Laura Hudson fan and you should listen to the Citadel Dropouts podcast and read Laura's recaps on Wired.com after every Game of Thrones episode.
2: Can I tell you an amazing Game of Thrones theory that I heard this week? Okay, yes. Somebody told me that Game of Thrones is an allegory for climate change. And that as you're watching these geopolitical squabbles of people fighting for power in Westeros, they're ignoring the much greater threat, which is the fact that there's like this geological ice age coming for them all. And they're all going to die unless they band together to save the climate of the kingdom.
0: So that means that, like the zombies and the dragons, are metaphors. Yeah. For what?
2: Greenhouse gases. <laughs> <laughs> plausible, definitely plausible. I think it's amazing. Anyway, I can't wait to listen to uh, Citadel Dropouts. Yeah. Can't wait to see yes. the new season premiere. It's going to be great. Yes. Are you guys uh, going to any Game of Thrones parties?
0: Um. No.
2: Okay. No. Is that not a thing here? Are you
0: hosting one? No. Just I mean, me. I, think, I think, you know, like the Sopranos, that was sort of a party, okay. you know, because like you would go over and somebody would make a big meal and everybody would watch the new episode. And, you know, that was a long time ago. I kind of feel like a lot has changed about social watching of television now. Everybody just hangs out on Twitter.
3: That's true. and Or mm-hmm. their Magic Leap headsets. and sits yes. alone mm-hmm. with a weird face computer.
0: But it's time shifted now too. Like people watch it whenever the hell they want. True. It's not appointment television anymore.
3: It's very true. It's very true. Okay, yeah. forget I asked. I may just Literally. be saying this because
0: I never get invited to any Game of Thrones parties.
3: Um, I you know I just let, let's change the topic. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Um. Well, let's get started on the news yeah. uh, before before we bring Ariane on to talk about Uber.
2: Yeah, I'll get started. Um, there's some big news in the universe this week. Astronomers have captured the first photo of a black hole which has exploded the collective minds on the internet and off the internet. This is pretty exciting. Um, the photo, which you've surely seen floating around social media, looks like this kind of blurry red eyeball. Uh, but what you're actually looking at is a galaxy called uh, Messier 87. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Is it like Messier 87? <laughs> Does anyone know? The French? I, I would think maybe Messier, but I don't I don't know. Well, it is a galaxy well, some 55 million light years from Earth and the reddish part of the photo is a ring of light uh, and the dark circle in the middle which kind of looks like the pupil of the eyeball is the black hole. So she take A step back for a second for those of you who are not super well-versed in your black hole knowledge. um, A black hole is a region in space where the gravitational field is super, super intense, so nothing, including light, can escape it. So it's not like an empty piece of space. It's actually a space where there's so much matter packed in very, very tightly that it appears like a black abyss. So it's this extremely mysterious, profound concept and it's actually been very difficult to prove the existence of a black hole. So Einstein famously comes up with this idea, um, but you can't like look into space and say, there's one, because light cannot escape it. Um, so the photo circulating this week is really cool and important, not just because it proves the existence of, of black holes or affirms this theory that Einstein came up with, um, but it also shows something about the sort of technological moment we're in. Uh, the photo took... Um, So much work to pull off. It's eight telescopes that are positioned on five different continents, uh, collecting all of this data that's then being synthesized through a supercomputer with, like, all these algorithms and all these researchers um, to produce this one singular photo that I think people on Twitter have been pointing out is, like, kind of blurry and, like, not that good of a photo.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The internet reaction, per usual, has been the best and the worst. Yeah. Uh, let's see your black hole yeah, photo. I was gonna say, let's see your Fourth of July fireworks photos, and then we'll talk. I would have liked to be a few. Right. Like, right. What do I know? And now there are the memes too where people are actually using it as the pupil to someone's eye, you know, the, the zoom in sort of thing where it's you can if if there was a an audible reaction, it would be dun dun dun, and then you end on the black hole pupil. Oh,
2: it's infinitely memeable. I saw a great tweet. Uh, which I will read to you by Andrea Long Chu, who wrote, "Ladies, if he doesn't text back, takes up all your energy. Used to be a star, doesn't like having his picture taken. Is 6.5 million times the mass of the sun. He's not your man. He's a black hole.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been acting a little distant lately. So, uh, so oh my goodness, I, I know it's really bad, but um, so I have a question that may be a dumb question, but when this type of photo is. Assembled, captured. Is there actually a a moment where somebody presses, you know, a button and then it's captured? Or is is there all just this, you know, data, this continuous data that's being pulled in and then it's it's assembled into um, a cohesive picture? How does that work?
2: yeah, so it's it's a crap ton of data uh, to use a technical term. So there's these these different telescopes that are radio telescopes that are very sophisticated, which are all looking at the same part of the universe, the same time from different continents, and they're taking captures of that space. And then that data is basically being, like, synthesized and run through these supercomputers to compress it. Um, I read one quote that said the data was the equivalent to 5,000 years of MP3 files. Wow. That they're then compressing, analyzing, sorting through to to get this one blurry photo.
0: So, like, one Creed album?
1: Because it feels (laughs) feels like...
2: I imagine that's Years. about how tedious it was. Was yeah. listening to one Creed album <laughs> is about the a level of tedium that these researchers had to endure.
3: So it's not it's not as though there's a researcher sitting there looking at all of the feeds coming from these satellites and then saying, "That's it, that's the moment. Like, let's get it." It's it's actually it's to your point, it's synthesized and later compiled into, "Wow, man, they look, you know, Forget triple-lens smartphone cameras. Good lord, this is remarkable. This is actually, like, when I read Wired's article about this yesterday by Sophia Chen on our website, which everybody should go read, it, it actually blew my mind. Like, there were a couple paragraphs where I had to go back and reread, and I was like, what? Like, what? What is happening? This is so incredible. It's really cool. And yet, and yet people on Twitter are like, it's blurry. <laughs> it's so
1: blurry. I really hope
2: that when we see... Um, new iphones new pixels all of that jazz later this year we get some black hole memes in there you know when <laughs> when when we're talking about the, the pixel 4s and <laughs> revolutionary camera i hope this comes back up again might yeah. be able to take a absolutely. blurry picture of black hole absolutely
3: Alright, well, in um, not-so-encouraging news, Alexa's listening to you! Okay, some people may have known or assumed that Amazon's Alexa needed a little bit of help from her human friends in order to get better over time, and that other virtual assistants work that way, too. But some people might not, or some people might have thought that those audio bytes were totally and completely private. Then on Wednesday, Bloomberg published a story about the workers employed by Amazon who actually listen to Alexa queries and help categorize them or flag them so that the service can get better can get better over time. The story says that there are thousands of people around the world who listen to voice recordings and transcribe, annotate, feed them back into the system, and in some cases it can get a little bit disturbing because those human contractors may even hear alarming sound bites from people like what appears to be a crime or sexual assault. Uh, Although according to the report, the workers have been told it's not really Amazon's job to interfere in those. But I think for a lot of people, this story has been slightly alarming because it just presents the reality that there are human beings working at these tech companies and working on these products who, in order to improve them, Are listening to what you're saying when you use the wake word and I'm going to apologize to anybody who has this on speaker right now and every time I'm saying Alexa it's probably triggering something (laughs) but you know when you use the wake word at that moment you are effectively granting the system you know access to your voice recording and if you actually go into your Amazon Alexa app on your mobile phone you can go back and listen to your own previously recorded little snippets or queries but it turns out there are human beings on the other end you know listening to these two Amazon also says that it takes great steps to ensure the privacy of of the people who are making these queries that your identity is stripped from the little sound bites so that people won't know who you are, but it's still a little bit uh, unnerving. And Lily Newman from our team at Wired is actually working on a story about this right now. So by the time you hear this podcast, it's probably up on Wired's website. But yeah, what did you guys make of this when this story published?
2: I think it's a good reminder, just at a very high level, it's a good reminder that all of these things we think of as artificial intelligence are at least in some way, powered by humans, right? Like, none of these things are operating on their own in silos as intelligent machines. Like, there are always humans behind the scenes. And unfortunately, the humans are the ones who often get saddled with the moral blame when something like a crime occurs and no one reports it, right? Um, So that, I think, is like an issue that we don't talk about enough when we talk about the intelligent devices that people put in their homes and interact with all the time. but yeah, I think, I, I don't know. My reaction was like, of course, of course there are people listening. Like, Alexa ain't that smart.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, there's there's a misrepresentation in the industry about how powerful AI is. And, you know, they make it seem like it can do absolutely everything. And they, you know, they don't try at all to dispel that perception when they talk about these things and by they, I mean like the big companies that have these, you know, supposedly AI driven systems, Mm -hmm. Siri, Google assistant, Mm -hmm. Alexa, Cortana, Mm -hmm. Bixby can never forget. always, always forget about (laughs) Bixby. Um, You know, there's, there's a a wall there that they can't get over and they have to be able to get over it in order for this to seem useful to people. So they just give it a little push over the wall Mm -hmm. and that makes it seem useful. And I honestly, like, I think it's, probably okay that they do that. They just have not been transparent about it.
3: Yeah, it's, it has not been explicit in their marketing, not in all cases. It's on like page companies.
0: 60 of their privacy policy.
3: <laughs> right, the, the white paper that's yeah. buried somewhere. Yeah, I think that it presents an interesting dynamic where every time that the conversation about AI turns to, let's say, automation replacing human workers um, for certain jobs in certain sectors, there's a lot of alarm about that, about the idea of AI becoming so powerful that it could potentially supplant human workers. And then when it comes to a story like this, the uh, concern is actually the opposite, which is that it is human workers who are still doing these jobs it's just that we don't want other human beings listening to the private conversations that we're having, mm-hmm. what we assume to be private, in our, in our homes. So, uh, so people's comfort levels are being pushed in all kinds of different directions when it comes to these uh, virtual assistants that are powered by artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that is only really, I don't see any real resolution to that in the near future. I think that um, the stakes are only gonna get higher. Yeah. Not to sound ominous, but
2: that's my take.
0: That's quite all right. Do you want some more ominous news? Please. Uh, Sure. Um, I want to tell you what happened with Facebook this week.
2: Oh, it wouldn't be a week on the Gadget Lab podcast (laughs) if we didn't tell you what happened in Facebook. Uh,
0: This is actually kind of important, and it's probably a good step forward for Facebook. But, of course, we'll have to see how it goes. Um, Facebook had a media event on Wednesday of this week. Uh, and the company says it's going to start rolling out some new processes that it hopes will stem the spread of fake news on its platform. Uh, the biggest change is something that's coming to the news feed, and it's called Click Gap. And Click Gap is pretty interesting, I think, because if you look at the way that sites are ranked By search engines, it sort of works like that. So what Facebook does is it looks at, um, let's say you want to post a news article, and it looks at how that news website is perceived outside of Facebook on the the real internet. So is it a reputable news source that people are linking to? Is it something that uh, a lot of people are talking about? Is it one that you see often uh, that has a good reputation as far as, you know, juice on the internet? Uh, And if it is, then they give it a good uh, and I'm sorry. And then they <laughs> they look at that same story that's posted on Facebook and they see engagement on it. They know that that engagement is probably good engagement because it's a good story. So if somebody posts a story on Facebook and it uh, has a lot of engagement, but then they look at that news outlet and that story out on the broader Internet and they see that it does not have a lot of engagement on the broader Internet, meaning that it's a, a smaller News organization. Uh, it's a news organization that's not as popular. It's not as it's not referenced by other media outlets. Then they can sort of ascertain that that particular news outlet may not be as reputable. Just because if it's getting traction on Facebook, it means that you know you can get traction on Facebook by saying something incendiary or you know saying something that is blatantly not true. Whereas that's a lot harder to get traction doing that sort of thing on on the, the larger internet. So they call that the click gap. So if there is a substantial click gap, then that story uh, is not given as much traction on Facebook. And if it's a smaller click gap, then they can you know ascertain that it's probably a more reputable story and will it will continue to spread uh, on Facebook like normal. So that's interesting. It's basically a way of spotting fake news and news that is really only out there just to get people to share it so that the Publication can collect ad revenue, uh, which is of course something that Facebook has Tried to get away from ever since they ruined the election three years ago. Uh, There's some other changes too. Uh, Facebook is going to start downgrading groups that share a lot of links from those more suspect websites So if you're in a group and a lot of stuff is being shared with high click gap Then they're going to start making your group more difficult to find when people are searching Uh, And there are some other controls too, but that's the only one they were really explicit about. Um, The last thing that they talked about is that they're going to make it more clear to people on Facebook Messenger that they're receiving something that was forwarded to them. Uh, This is sort of in response to something that happened last year where whatsapp was being used to spread misinformation uh, in india in particular so they made it more explicit in whatsapp when somebody was forwarding something to you so they make that more explicit now in messenger so that's sort of bleeding that that little tweak is bleeding across the other the other platforms
3: is facebook going to identify groups that are sharing lots of suspect links or links from suspect websites are they actually going to identify that or flag it in some way too rather than just Demote the group because I imagine that some people will still be able to f- find or search for a group or a group will bubble up in their feed. But then, how are they going to know that it's I don't know potentially harmful in some way?
0: I'm not sure, but yeah, um, the way that these groups gain influence is through the um, through volume. You know, so as more people find them and more people join them, then they become more influential. So by making it more difficult for people to find them and making it more difficult for people to join them, it makes them more difficult to become influential. And, you know, a lot of these groups are private. So if there's abuse happening on these groups. The only way that you can catch it is if people report it or if um, Facebook's auto abuse algorithms sort of detect it. Uh, So there's already problems with groups that they're aiming to solve. And I think this is just sort of another layer on top of that
3: just when you thought we were going to get by an entire week without talking about Facebook and the podcast, I was thinking, you know, we have, like, black holes to talk about. <laughs> it's incredible. Facebook is the
2: original black hole, Lauren. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say that, like, it, it seems... It. I mean, it's always encouraging to some degree when you see Facebook trying to take responsibility for what's going on on the platform and mm-hmm. trying to introduce these initiatives but but this one like so many of the ones they've introduced in the past year just feels like so convoluted to me at least um you know it's like trying to like pull all these various levers to decide what is more trustworthy and what is harmful and what's fake and to like reduce the spread of these things but in the in the most indirect way mm-hmm. you could possibly do so um, I mean, I I'm just sort of skeptical as always that this really makes a big impact.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 click gap thing is probably going to make a pretty big impact if it works as designed, which, as we've that's seen, yeah, that's as we've seen most of the things that Facebook puts out there are used for purposes that Facebook could never have imagined. Um, The click gap thing would would probably work to keep the shadiest websites from getting passed around as much as they are on Facebook. The ones that are kind of in the middle, who knows, you know, so I think that's it's a step right in the right direction. But it's kind of interesting too the timing, you know, because Facebook was just on um, Capitol Hill last week Mm -hmm. talking about um, what happened when somebody in. New Zealand, um, live broadcasted a mass murder of 50 people in hate crime uh, on Facebook. And also they have a developer conference coming up in just a couple of weeks. F8 is coming up at the end of April. Uh, And there will no doubt be a lot of talk about how these changes are going to affect developers who are working on apps for the Facebook platform. So, um, you know, there's a, there's always a lot going on with this company, but there's a particular, there's in particular, a lot going on right now. Um, the larger view of this also is next year's an election year. And now that the, the sort of secret formula for gaming Facebook is out and in the wild, it's probably going to be a lot more, more prevalent. So I think it's good that they're taking these steps now to tamp down fake news, but... You know, as we keep saying, (laughs) let's see what happens. It's kind of scary. Anyway, that's it for the news this week. Um, Why don't we just take a break and then bring on Ariane? Sounds great. Great.
1: This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing the Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.
3: Well, as we are taping this podcast on Thursday afternoon, Uber has filed to go public. And so we asked Ariane Marshall, a staff writer at Wired, who covers the transportation industry and covers it quite well, if she could step away from her desk for a few moments to join us, even though she is filing at this moment, thank you. This is live journalism happening right it's now. Happening. Thank you so much for joining us. What do we know so
4: far from the S1? Oh, man. So I'm still an an S1, if you haven't had the uh, pleasure of reading through <laughs> one, um, is very long, um, like 300 pages ish. So I'm, I'm still kind of slowly reading through it. Um, I wouldn't say there are a ton of surprises here. I think we've known for a while that Uber is making a lot of money. Um, It's making, it made uh, over $11 billion last year. It's also losing a lot of money. Um, Last year, it lost about $3 billion, which is actually less money than it lost the year before, so it's improving there, though that's a lot of money to set on fire. if you ask me. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's also it's I, I think another big takeaway for me is just that this is an incredibly ambitious company. If you think of Uber and you think of uh, ride hail of the driver who comes to the curb and picks you up uh, after a night at the bar, that's not quite what Uber is anymore. It's also uh, all about delivery. Uber Eats, it says in this filing, it believes is the biggest delivery Um, service outside of China. Um, It's Uber Freight, which is its technology for trucking brokers. And it's self-driving cars. It's working on flying taxis. It's a huge, sprawling and complex company that faces some challenges um, in the future. Um, But it's it's really uh, interesting and rewarding as someone who's been following RideHail for some years now to actually See some some official stats on paper. So um, still going through it, but um, there's some there's some interesting kind of fun nuggets in here.
3: Speaking of those challenges, what are the risk factors that Uber
4: has identified going forward? They've identified a bunch of them. I think one of the things that that comes up first in this filing is it essentially says there is still a chance we may never be profitable, uh, which just uh, seems big. Uber believes that in order to make money, it has to continue to invest a ton in lots of new things. That includes finding new riders, new drivers, new restaurants to, to partner with, new shippers. It needs to also uh, create incentives and discounts and promotions for all those people. So it's basically telling potential investors hey, in order to make money in the long term, we're going to have to spend spend a ton of money up front and we really, really hope that we can't promise you that there is light at the end of that tunnel in the form of some mountain of cash that we will eventually be able to return to you, our dear shareholders. Uh, So it seems to be like they're outlining a long path. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, For people who aren't shareholders or have no interest or plans to invest in the company, uh, what is what is Uber going public mean? Like if I'm just a person who has the app on my phone and uses it all the time, what is what is this change going to mean for me?
4: I don't think it's going to affect your life immediately, uh, except that uh, a company being on the public market means it's. Uh, can sometimes be more responsive to um, kind of the public uh, image of what a company is. You know, if uh, Ford, for example, uh, it comes out that they were doing something horrible, you're going to see their stock price tank. So uh, in theory, there might be a little more accountability there, but I I wouldn't expect, I don't know, your Uber driver isn't going to show up in like a gold-plated car because... (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> because
4: <laughs> of this IPO. Um,
3: but I do wonder if that means a company starts to take more um, uh, short-term risks and you know, maybe emphasizes or focuses on products that are going to offer a return more quickly than making long-term investments and in, uh, things that, I don't know, could in the long term benefit the consumer more, and especially now that we have Lyft's financials as well. So these are two directly competing companies that that can now look at each other's, you know, it's like they can see each other with their clothes off every every quarter <laughs> and be like, I, I see you, so I know what you're doing and this is how we're going to, we're going to make a decision now that's maybe a little more based on the bottom line. I mean, I think that's always the potential when you've got somebody who's got to answer to share, shareholders now four times a year.
2: Yeah, and speaking of Lyft, I mean, I think it goes without saying that this is kind of a big year for RideHail in general, not just because of Uber's IPO, but because Lyft is, is also going public. Um, are there big differences in their strategies there? Or has, has there been anything that's come to light in terms of how they're differentiating while going through this transition at the same time?
4: Yeah, I think um, the big story for Lyft has been that there was a year or so there when it didn't necessarily look like they were going to survive, and um, what U- Uber folks would tell you quietly is they uh, they wanted a monopoly. They wanted to own RideHail, and they saw their path to profit- profitability as a monopoly over RideHail. Um, and clearly that's not going to happen in a bunch of markets, because Lyft is a thing, and it's still much smaller than Uber. So... Uber made $11 billion last year. And by made, I mean that, that's what they brought in in revenue. Um, and Lyft brought in $2.2 billion. So it's still much smaller than Uber, but it's growing faster than Uber. Um, and as these companies fight for market share out in public, um, there's a possibility you could see some more discounts. Um, But what analysts will also tell you is that there may be a time when there's some kind of stasis in the market and then fares are going to go up. Uh,
0: What do you think Uber going public is going to, what impact do you think that's gonna have on their um, labor relations problem?
4: I don't know if it's going to have any direct impact on its labor relations problem, but I do know that it's something when in these sorts of filings, they they lay out their risk factors and that's uh, the things that could cause them trouble in the years ahead. And they lay out that as a very serious one. I think the um, labor organizing among uh, tech workers generally and among drivers for these uh, apps specifically, it's growing. There's some momentum there. And there's also some momentum in the courts where um, drivers are pushing for Uber and Lyft. Some drivers, I should note, not all, are pushing for Uber and Lyft to reclassify whether they're independent contractors or employees. Um Uber says in this filing, which I don't think is something we've heard before, that it believes 60,000 drivers have entered into arbitration with them or have expressed their interest in entering into arbitration with them over specifically employee misclassification. Um, That's a lot of money that Uber may have to spend down the line. Um, It's less expensive than if they were uh, entering into a court case with these people, which is why they have arbitration agreements to begin with. But uh, even so, th- I think there's uh, a lot of conflict um Ahead for Uber. And remember, it's fighting these battles on a a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. It's uh, doing everything it can in specific U.S. states, but it also has to deal with London and it also has to deal with various European countries. um, And they all have different approaches to labor law and and employee law. So it'll be interesting. Where is Travis Kalanick in all of this?
0: (laughs) Oh, he's... Looking at islands, deciding <laughs> which one he wants to buy.
4: Yeah, if he can get to it before Garrett Camp does, I yeah, guess.
0: He owns, what, like 8% of the company or something.
4: According to the uh, filing with the SEC, Travis specifically owns 8.6% um, of shares before offering. Um, and he, right now, has his own company that does real estate, who knows what he's doing? Please call Travis. We'd love to hear from you. Um, very interested in what you're up to today. Um, but I think very purposefully he's also hasn't like made any comments to the media because uh, I think he and Uber have sort of mutually separated at this point. Um, though he's you know he stands to gain some money here, so good for him.
2: Yeah, eight percent is is nothing to sneeze at. Um, but also this is, you know, besides being a sort of big business moment, it's a big branding moment for Uber to say we're growing up. We've grown up. That guy that you remember us for has nothing to do with the company except for that he's going to stand to make a lot of money off of it f- now and forevermore. Um, but it's a moment for them to say, like, we're, we're a very different company now. And I think uh, f- filing to go public is is as much a public image thing as it is a business thing.
4: Yeah, I, and one thing that's sort of funny about these SEC filings, as you see companies like Uber saying things like, you know, we had a real, they say this in more official language than I'm, I'm about to say, but um, we had a really tough 2017 because there were a lot of, uh, you know, sexual harassment Um stories in the media about us and like that's sort of a liability growing f- going forward if something like that happens again because they legally have to tell investors about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, they they want to they want people to think they are adults. Um, their new-ish CEO, uh, Dara Kostroshahi is uh, constantly trying to represent himself as the adult in the room. Um, he is a family man who still spends a lot of his time with his actual family in Washington State. Um, he's not like a San Francisco tech bro, or at least that's not how he wants to be thought of um, and so yes they'll they'll tell you they're still a company in the midst of a big transition and I guess it's we'll see whether that's the case. Another thing that's in this filing is they say they're going to put out a transparency report this year about data on harassment allegations within the company, which is really interesting. so we'll see we'll see what sort of data they actually, come up with there.
3: Is that the same report that Eric Holder was involved in back
4: in 2017? And I, Is it a different report? I doubt they'll just straight up put that out because okay. based on, I haven't seen it, if you have the Holder reports, please send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> we have secure drop. <laughs> yeah, but Based on what I've heard about it, there's some not like really not great stuff there that they don't want. Even if it's been a few years, they don't want anyone to see. Um, so I suspect this will kind of be a sanitized version of that. But they clear, they clearly want, they clearly at least want people to think that they're being more transparent.
0: So one last question, and then we'll let you get back to your your um, story that you're still. Getting over the finish line. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was uh, a lot of talk over the last couple of years about Uber developing technology for flying cars, for self-driving cars. Does this stuff show up in their in their filing, or is this something that they talked about but now they have to be more realistic about because they have actual shareholders to answer to?
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it's it comes up a lot in the filing, which is interesting. Um, one thing they say is that they um, expect. You get beaten to market on this technology. But uh, something that happened with Uber is that they had this um, terrible testing crash in Arizona almost exactly a year ago. Um, it, It killed a woman there, which was horrible. And they ended up dramatically scaling back their testing efforts. And right now they're only testing on some streets in Pittsburgh, and they've kind of had to slow their roll and rethink the way they are dealing with safety and testing for self-driving cars. Um, they continue to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this technology, um, and they think someone is going to get there first. Um, that said, they have a big network. They're on all of our phones, so if even if they're not first to market, um, they might be able to still kind of win the self-driving war, um, but... Th- th- they also outline in this filing a really interesting future where there's going to be a mix of autonomous vehicles and human Uber drivers, and they say they're going to have to have people who are dedicated to on-the-ground operations who are essentially choosing when to send a robot and when to send a driver, which to me sounds very expensive. Um, <laughs> that I mean, maybe that's just how logistics have to work in a, in a company. It's not like... Uh, you're going to flip a switch and have all robot drivers one day. But um, it, A, seems to be something they're thinking about, how to actually roll out this technology. But B, they are having to get a little more realistic about how that'll actually work. Um, And it'd be awesome if they had to talk to the public more about it because I'd I'd love to learn more.
2: Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with us. We cannot wait to see what happens. We will have you back on very, very soon to talk about what's going on with Uber, Lyft, and the rest of the future of transportation. Thank you, Ariane Marshall.
4: Thanks for having me. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination.
1: Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the
0: best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play.
4: I'm Dina temple raston And on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them.
0: We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it.
4: Click here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world.
0: AI machines, satellite, engine ignition.
4: Click here
0: and lift up.
4: Click here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right, let's move on to our recommendations. Ariel, why don't you go first?
2: I've got a really cool one this week. It is a brand new app that I have just started using and recommend to everyone who may have a little bit of digital detritus in their life. Um, I speak of the tweets that you may have wanted to delete from a long time ago. I speak of the Facebook posts That may be public to everyone because you posted them 10 years ago and have never thought to delete them. I speak of your Google search queries, your Amazon snippets of of voice memos. Um, All these things can be very easily cleared and deleted with this cool app called Jumbo, which is your personal privacy assistant. Um, It's an app that lets you clean your personal data across social media services. So you, you get the app. And you link it to uh, Twitter, Facebook, Gmail, Alexa. They're announcing support for Instagram and some other platforms very soon. Um, And by linking this, you're not giving Jumbo any permissions, actually. But it it somehow has a way that it can uh, delete old tweets, it can adjust your Facebook privacy settings, it can clear out your search queries and other cool things um, with just the press of a button. So I I kind of am thinking of it like the way that people have maybe like a house cleaner come every couple months just to like deep clean. And then you pay that person and you're like, thank you so much. I feel so much better. This is like the digital version of that, except it's free. Jumbo.
0: Jumbo. That's pretty awesome. I'm very
3: intrigued by this. I, would, I want to know if they're, like, hoovering up your data. Yeah, <laughs> died. And they're like, you thought you deleted it.
0: Yeah, what kind of, permissions, what kind of permissions are you giving them? You yeah. give them- they,
2: claim, they do claim something about, like, not storing your data in an insidious way and that, like, all of this is happening on your iPhone, so they're not actually storing anything. But I forget how they phrased it, so you'll just have to cut this. Sorry.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I trust them. Okay. Lauren, why Best don't you go fun? next?
3: All right. Um... My recommendation this week is a little slice of heaven on the internet.
0: Oh, my goodness.
3: Yes. It's an Instagram account called One Bike, One World. Oh, my goodness. It is a Scottish man who has taken to exploring exploring the world, but I think he's largely been in Europe, on his bike, and along the way, he encountered a kitten, a kitten who would not leave his side. Mm -hmm. He scooped up the kitten. Turns out, she likes bikes, and she loves him. He named her Nala, and he got her a little basket that sits on the front of his bike. And he and Nala have been exploring the world. He just got her spade. That was the Instagram content this week. And the two of them together is just some of the most touching stuff I've seen on Instagram in a while. Uh, Also, I love cats. So <laughs> so that may be part of it. For some of you who don't love cats, you might not find it quite so endearing. I don't know. There's something really endearing. I don't know anything about this guy, but he's a big, burly dude with this tiny little kitten traveling the world. And I think you should go check out One Bike. That's the numeral one, one world, and both numerals. One Bike One World Instagram account.
0: It's just so amazing. It's it, so cute. It, it, it's just something about like he has this beard and he has these big shoulders and these big arms and he often poses holding the cat in his arms or sitting on his chest. It reminds me of there was like the Looney Tunes cartoon from the 50s. Uh, it's called Kiss Me Cat. You've probably seen it like it's a big bulldog and a little tiny like tuxedo kitten. And the dog is like barking and barking and barking and trying to scare the kitten. And all the kitten wants to do is crawl on his back and fall asleep. Oh, and he just like his heart melts. And all of a sudden they become the best friends. And he's, you know, like holding the kitten. It just reminds me of that. He just like this, this, this giant beast of a man and this little cat. (laughs) It's So
3: good. It's really cute. He also helped a puppy get adopted along the way.
0: Oh, that's awesome
3: yeah he's uh it's great just go check it out if you need yeah. if you need to be cheered up
0: it's also he just he seems like a really pure soul he's like a good dude he yeah
3: has... let's hope let's hope it's not a milkshake duck
0: <laughs> can you imagine
3: am, am i not supposed to say that
0: no
2: no you okay. can say that <laughs> I, I feel like now that you've said it someone is gonna dig up the thing that will make us all hate. oh this. i hope not
0: oh no i that's hope not terrible. i have faith
3: all right, MC.
2: What is yours?
0: Oh boy. Hey, do you like movies? <laughs>
2: What's a movie? Not the kind of movies you like.
0: How do you know? <laughs> okay, so you may remember about a year ish ago, I recommended uh, a service, a streaming movie service called Filmstruck. Uh, Filmstruck is was RAP. Filmstruck was a service for uh, fans of not just movies but cinema. Um, and I say it like that because you know it's like art house movies and serious movies and Im- important quote unquote important movies. I'm doing air quotes right now. Um, Filmstruck was a joint venture between uh, Turner, which owns Turner Classic Movies uh, and a lot of you know stuff from recent years, and uh, Criterion, uh, the people who are film preservationists and are um, rapidly sucking up all of the great movies from around the world that have made a big impact on our cultural understanding of each other through film. So that venture sunk. They decided it wasn't worth money anymore and they stopped doing it. So Criterion spun out on their own and launched their own streaming service. It launched on Monday, April 8th, uh, and it is a monthly subscription of $11 a month, or you can buy a whole year for $100, and it gives you access to a vast library of Criterion streaming movies. So if you're a fan of art house cinema or if you're a fan of agnes varda or if you're a fan of akira kurosawa or ingmar bergman uh or david lynch
3: david Did lynch, you say david lynch already? i have oh. not said
0: david lynch yet they don't have all the david lynch movies but they have like lost highway and the elephant man and Eraserhead, so you can get like halfway there with david Firewalk with me you can get halfway there with david lynch if you subscribe to criterion anyway it's fantastic um I'm a, I'm a charter member. Like, right now, I think if you sign up, they give you a bit of a discount. So I did that, and I it's amazing. Um, I've just been building my list, and it's all, like, old Italian shit from the 60s. So, Ariel, you have to come over, and I'll make popcorn, and we'll watch all those boring black-and-white movies with subtitles that you love.
3: Can't wait. I'll Am I not invited?
0: Oh, yeah. No, you're invited. She just gives me shit about it all the time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway... We have one last thing to tell you about before we go. As you may know, Wired is part of the Condé Nast media family. We're a big company, all different kinds of publications like Vogue, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair. And occasionally we get the chance to tell you about something that is great that is happening somewhere else in the Condé Nast world. So this week we want to tell you about a great podcast being produced by one of our siblings.
3: This week, we want to tell you guys about Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. The Oscars are, in fact, very over, and the Emmys may not be until September. But in Hollywood, award season is kind of a year round event. Why else would so many great TV shows suddenly be premiering in April, or so many movie stars getting ready to fly to Cannes? It is Cannes, right? Can Cannes,
0: Cannes,
3: Cannes, Cannes. Each week, the team of Mike Hogan, Richard Lawson, Katie Rich, and Joanna Robinson discuss the ups and downs of awards races and the biggest topics in Hollywood that week from the much-hyped final season of Game of Thrones to the extremely early 2020 Oscar predictions. Award shows may be one night only, but the process of getting there is a year-round event, and Little Gold Men explains the campaigning, the favoritism, the occasional dirty tricks that everyone endures in order to stand on stage and hold that gold statue. Subscribe to Little Gold Men on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And that's it for this week from The Gadget Lab. That's it. Lauren, tell people how they can find you on the Twitter.
3: I'm at Lauren Good with an E.
0: And how about you, Ariel?
2: I'm at Part Esoteric. And you, Mike?
0: I am at Snack
2: And you can bling us all at Gadget Lab.
0: And was... we'll be back next week talking about what? What are we talking about next week?
2: Next week, we are talking about,
3: well, we're going to have a guest in, but we'll let you know later.
0: The microblading expert?
3: Yeah, the microblading expert. <laughs> that was all so smooth. <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you